This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Utopia of Usurers by G. K. Chesterton. Section 6 A Workman's History of England. A thing which does not exist, and which is very much wanted, is a working man's history of England. I do not mean a history written for working men. There are whole dustbins of them. I mean a history written by working men from the working men's standpoint. I wish five generations of a fisher's or a miner's family could incarnate themselves in one man and tell the story. It is impossible to ignore altogether any comment coming from so eminent a literary artist as Mr. Lawrence Hausman. But I do not deal here so specially with his well-known conviction about votes for women, as with another idea which is, I think, rather at the back of it, if not with him at least with others, and which concerns this matter of the true story of England. For the true story is so entirely different from the false official story that the official classes tell that by this time the working class itself has largely forgotten its own experience. Either story can be quite logically linked up with female suffrage, which therefore I leave where it is for the moment, merely confessing that so long as we get hold of the right story and not the wrong story, it seems to me a matter of secondary importance whether we link it up with female suffrage or not. Now the ordinary version of recent English history that most moderately educated people have absorbed from childhood is something like this. We emerge slowly from a semi-barbarism in which all the power and wealth were in the hands of the kings and a few nobles, that the king's power was broken first and then in due time that of the nobles, that this piecemeal improvement was brought about by one class after another waking up to a sense of citizenship and demanding a place in the national councils, frequently by riot or violence, and that in consequence of such menacing popular action, the franchise was granted to one class after another, and used more and more to improve the social conditions of those classes, until we practically became a democracy, save for such exceptions as that of women. I do not think anyone will deny that something like that is the general idea of the educated man who reads newspapers, and of the newspaper that he reads. That is the view current at public schools and colleges. It is part of the culture of all the classes that count for much in government, and there is not one word of truth in it from beginning to end. That Great Reform Bill Wealth and political power were very much more popularly distributed in the Middle Ages than they are now. But we will pass all that and consider recent history. The franchise has never been largely and liberally granted in England. Half the males have no vote and are not likely to get one. It was never granted in reply to pressure from awakened sections of the democracy. In every case there was a perfectly clear motive for granting it, solely for the convenience of the aristocrats. The great reform bill was not passed in response to such riots as that which destroyed a castle. 
nor did the men who destroyed the castle get any advantage whatever out of the great reform bill the great reform bill was passed in order to seal an alliance between the landed aristocrats and the rich manufacturers of the north an alliance that rules us still and the chief object of that alliance was to prevent the english populace getting any political power in the general excitement after the french revolution no one can read macaulay's speech on the chartists for instance and not see that this is so disraeli's further extension of the suffrage was not affected by the intellectual vivacity and pure republican theory of the mid-victorian agricultural laborer it was affected by a politician who saw an opportunity to dish the Whigs, and guessed that certain orthodoxies in the more prosperous artisan might yet give him a balance against the commercial radicals. And while this very thin game of wire-pulling, with the mere abstraction of the vote, was being worked entirely by the oligarchs, and entirely in their interests, the solid and real thing that was going on was the steady despoiling of the poor of all power or wealth until they find themselves today upon the threshold of slavery. That is the working man's history of England. Now, as I have said, I care comparatively little what is done with the mere voting part of the matter, so long as it is not claimed in such a way as to allow the plutocrat to escape his responsibility for his crimes by pretending to be much more progressive, or much more susceptible to popular protest, than he ever has been. And there is this danger in many of those who have answered me. One of them, for instance, says that women have been forced into their present industrial situations by the same iron economic laws that have compelled men. I say that men have not been compelled by iron economic laws, but in the main by the coarse and Christless cynicism of other men. But of course this way of talking is exactly in accordance with the fashionable and official version of English history. Thus you will read that the monasteries, places where men of the poorest origin could be powerful, grew corrupt and gradually decayed. You will read that the medieval guilds, a free workman, yielded at last to an inevitable economic law. You will read this, and you will be reading lies. They might as well say that Julius Caesar gradually decayed at the foot of Pompey's statue. You might as well say that Abraham Lincoln yielded at last to an inevitable economic law. The free medieval guilds did not decay. They were murdered. Solid men with solid guns and halberds, armed with lawful warrants from living statesmen, broke up their corporations and took away their hard cash from them. In the same way, the people in Cradley Heath are no more victims of a necessary economic law than the people in Putumeo. They are victims of a very terrible creature, of whose sins much has been said since the beginning of the world, and of whom it was said of old, Let us fall into the hands of God, for his mercies are great, but let us not fall into the hands of man. The Capitalist is in the Dock Now it is this offering of a false economic excuse for the sweater, that is the danger in perpetually saying that the poor woman will use the vote and the poor man has not used it. The poor man is prevented from using it, prevented by the rich man, and the poor woman would be prevented in exactly the same gross and stringent style. 
I do not deny, of course, that there is something in English temperament and in the heritage of the last few centuries that makes the English workman more tolerant of wrong than most foreign workmen would be. But this only slightly modifies the main fact of the moral responsibility. To take an imperfect parallel, if we said that Negro slaves would have rebelled if Negroes had been more educated, we should be saying what is reasonable. But if we were to say that it could by any possibility be represented as being the Negro's fault, that he was at that moment in America and not in Africa, we should be saying what is frankly unreasonable. It is every bit as unreasonable to say the mere supineness of the English workmen has put them in the capitalist slave-yard. The capitalist has put them in the capitalist slave-yard, and very cunning smiths have hammered the chains. It is just this creative criminality in the authors of the system that we must not allow to be slurred over. The capitalist is in the dock today, and so far as I at least can prevent him, he shall not get out of it. THE FRENCH REVOLUTION AND THE IRISH It will be long before the poison of the party system is worked out of the body politic. Some of its most indirect effects are the most dangerous. One that is very dangerous just now is this, that for most Englishmen the party system falsifies history, and especially the history of revolutions. It falsifies history because it simplifies history. It paints everything, either blue or buff, in the style of its own silly circus politics, while a real revolution has as many colors as the sunrise, or as the end of the world. And if we do not get rid of this error, we shall make very bad blunders about the real revolution which seems to grow more and more probable, especially among the Irish. And any human familiarity with history will teach a man this, first of all, that party practically does not exist in a real revolution. It is a game for quiet times. If you take a boy who has been to one of the big private schools, which are falsely called public schools, and another boy who has been to one of those large public schools, which are falsely called the board schools, you will find some differences between the two, chiefly a difference in the management of the voice. But you will find they are both English in a special way and that their education has been essentially the same. They are ignorant on the same subjects. They have never heard of the same plain facts. They have been taught the wrong answer to the same confusing question. There is one fundamental element in the attitude of the Eton master talking about playing the game, and the elementary teacher training gutter snipes to sing What is the Meaning of Empire Day? and the name of that element is unhistoric. It knows nothing, really, about England, still less about Ireland or France, and least of all, of course, about anything like the French Revolution. Revolution by Snap Division Now, what general notion does the ordinary English boy, thus taught to utter one ignorance in one or two accents, get to keep through life about the French Revolution? It is the notion of the English House of Commons, with an enormous radical majority on one side of the table and a small Tory minority on the other, the majority voting solid for a republic, 
the minority voting solid for a monarchy two teams tramping through two lobbies with no difference between their methods and ours except that owing to some habit peculiar to gaul the brief intervals were brightened by a riot or a massacre instead of by a whisky and soda and a marconi tip novels are much more reliable than histories in such matters for though an english novel about france does not tell the truth about france it does tell the truth about england and more than half the histories never tell the truth about anything and popular fiction i think bears witness to the general english impression the french revolution is a snap division with an unusual turnover of votes on the one side stand a king and queen who are good but weak surrounded by nobles with rapiers drawn some of whom are good many of whom are wicked all of whom are good-looking against these there is a formless mob of human beings wearing red caps and seemingly insane who all blindly follow ruffians who are also rhetoricians some of whom die repentant and others unrepentant toward the end of the fourth act the leaders of this boiling mass of all men melted into one are called mirabeau robespierre danton marat and so on it is conceded that their united frenzy may have been forced on them by the evils of the old regime that i think is the commonest english view of the french revolution and it will not survive the reading of two pages of any real speech or letter of the period these human beings were human varied complex and inconsistent but the rich englishman ignorant of revolutions would hardly believe you if you told him some of the common human subtleties of the case tell him that robespierre threw the red cap in the dirt in disgust while the king had worn it with a broad grin so to speak tell him that danton the fierce founder of the republic of terror said quite sincerely to a noble i am more monarchist than you tell him that the terror really seems to have been brought to an end chiefly by the efforts of people who particularly wanted to go on with it and he will not believe these things he will not believe them because he has no humility and therefore no realism he has never been inside himself and so could never be inside another man the truth is that in the french affair everybody occupied an individual position every man talked sincerely if not because he was sincere than because he was angry robespierre talked even more about god than about the republic because he cared even more about god than about the republic danton talked even more about france than about the republic because he cared even more about france than about the republic marat talked more about humanity than either because that physician though himself somewhat needing a physician really cared about it the nobles were divided each man from the next the attitude of the king was quite different from the attitude of the queen certainly much more different than any differences between our liberals and tories for the last twenty years and it will sadden some of my friends to remember that it was the king who was the liberal and the queen who was the tory there were not two people i think in that most practical crisis who stood in precisely the same attitude towards the situation and that is why between them they saved europe it is when you really perceive the unity of mankind that you really perceive its variety 
it is not a flippancy it is a very sacred truth to say that when men really understand that they are brothers they instantly begin to fight the revival of reality now these things are repeating themselves with an enormous reality in the irish revolution you will not be able to make a party system out of the matter everybody is in revolt therefore everybody is telling the truth the nationalists will go on caring most for the nation as danton and the defenders of the frontier went on caring most for the nation the priests will go on caring for the religion as robespierre went on caring most for religion the socialists will go on caring most for the cure of physical suffering as Marat went on caring most for it. It is out of these real differences that real things can be made, such as the modern French democracy. For by such tenacity everyone sees at last that there is something in the other person's position, and those drilled in party discipline see nothing, either past or present. And where there is nothing, there is Satan. For a long time past in our politics there has not only been no real battle, but no real bargain. No two men have bargained as Gladstone and Parnell bargained, each knowing the other to be a power. But in real revolutions men discover that no one man can really agree with another man until he has disagreed with him. End of section 6